today, we have the great fortune to have a personal friend of mine and a real live and absolutely brilliant prostate cancer researcher to talk with us about an investigational drug that she has invented, or I should say developed. My guest, Dr. Mary Ann Satter, is the distinguished scientist at the British Columbia Cancer Agency, having received her PhD from the University of Bradford in the United Kingdom in biochemistry. She also has done postdoctoral work at AstraZeneca in molecular biology and at the British Columbia Cancer Agency, the Department of Endocrinology, with her postdoctoral work specifically in prostate cancer. She has served on over 50 grant panels, including five years at the NIH study session for drug discovery, and has been and is still the chief scientific officer of a biotechnology company which she has founded called ESSA. Dr. Satter discovered a novel drug target for prostate cancer. She screened drugs against this target and brought a clinical candidate into clinical trials that are currently ongoing in both the United States and in Canada. This is the first drug in clinical trials targeting the N-terminus of the androgen receptor. Her work is a first in type to the entire field of steroid hormone receptors with no other small molecule inhibitor reported to bind to the N-terminus. Dr. Sada, I was wondering if you could tell us a little about your research, specifically translate what it is that I said so that we can understand it. My research is focused on advanced prostate cancer. It's focused on the protein in the human body that causes most prostate cancer to grow and rapidly proliferate. The treatment for advanced prostate cancer is unfortunately castration, which is to reduce the male sex hormone. That male sex hormone works on this protein called the androgen receptor that I've been studying for 20 years. What I've been doing is trying to figure out how this androgen receptor continues to fuel advanced prostate cancer even though these men are castrated. What I've been doing for the past 21 years, trying to find therapeutics, trying to find drugs that will benefit these men, prolong their life, improve their quality of life. Are there other drugs that target this particular protein, the androgen receptor? Yes. When men with advanced prostate cancer are treated for advanced disease, they receive LHRH analogs, which reduce their testosterone levels, and that really targets androgen receptor because it reduces testosterone levels, male sex hormone that binds to the androgen receptor. There's also abiraterone, which is used, which reduces the amount of androgens in men that are receiving it, and that has beneficial effects. And it works again on reducing testosterone or these steroids that bind androgen receptor. There's also antiandrogens. And there's a number of antiandrogens. Probably the most well-known one now is enzalutamide. But there's also the whole family, which is bicalutamide, flutamide, nilutamide. There's a lot of these antiandrogens. They work on the opposite end of where my drug works. They work in the same spot that testosterone and uh, other steroids will bind to androgen receptor. So it's like a competition. They will fill the spot that testosterone normally would fit on androgen receptor to prevent the testosterone from working on the androgen receptor. It is a well-known target, but what's unique about my research is that's not the important part of the androgen receptor because in advanced disease, that part of the androgen receptor where testosterone interacts with the androgen receptor might not be made anymore, and it might be a truncated androgen receptor. So that would mean all of these therapies, all the antiandrogens, abiraterone, 
castration wouldn't have any effect on these truncated androgen receptors. We are targeting the part of the androgen receptor that isn't lost in the disease, and that's called the N-terminal domain. So it's present on all forms of androgen receptor that cause the disease to keep proliferating and growing. The time that this drug would probably be used would be at the time that a man becomes castrate and these other drugs stop working. That's where we're starting. We're starting our clinical trial that's ongoing right now. It's a dose escalation study. It's a phase one. It is in men that have become resistant to abiraterone or to enzalutamide, or some men receive both of these therapies. So that's where we're looking now. We're looking at quite late in the disease, so after men have received a lot of treatments and those treatments no longer work, that's where our drug has been slotted in to see if we can help those men. In the event that our drug works, hurrah, then we'll try to move the drug earlier. We'll try to move it into earlier disease because theoretically is having the effect that we see in the laboratory, it should help men with earlier disease as well. How do you see this effect in the lab? We have a lot of different models. You can never truly mimic human disease, like treating a patient, so we have different cell lines. These cell lines were made from men that had metastatic disease, and that metastatic disease was removed. Their cells were then grown in a culture dish, and then we try our drugs on these cells that are grown in culture dishes. We have a lot of molecularly engineered cells that have readout systems on them so we know if our drug is working. For example, we engineered our human prostate cancer cells. These were cells that were originally from a man with a prostate cancer metastasis to his lymph node in his subclavicle region. We engineered those cells so that when the androgen receptor, which is the target, was pushing proliferation and causing cells to grow and divide, that the cells would emit light how we screened for drugs was, let's see which drugs can turn off the light. And so there's specific equipment for that, there's assays for that, but that was really one of our assays. We screened about 36,000 drugs. That's actually relatively low, but we got lucky. Always a little bit of luck helps. So the drug that we found was Epi-506. It turned off the light. And then there was a whole battery of tests. Then we test how specific the drug is. Does it kill other cells? which wouldn't be good because we only want to kill prostate cancer cells. We don't want to kill bladder cells or epithelial cells in the intestines. So you start to check how specific the drug is for prostate cancer. And then, of course, we do our animal studies, which most closely mimics human disease. And that's where you take these human prostate cancer cells and you grow tumors in animals. Unfortunately, you have to do this because that's the closest to human. And these tumors will grow in these castrated animals, just like what happens in human disease. Then we give the animals our drugs, uh, our Epi-506. We would see this wonderful effect, reduced tumor growth. It's sort of the full line from in the bench to animal testing. And then, of course, in order to get in the clinic, we had to do the FDA protocols for safety and toxicity. And what's involved in that? Oh, Boy, an enormous amount. It's very expensive. I couldn't do that in my lab. So now the biggest hurdle was money. I can do the molecular biology as an academic, so I received grants, a lot of grants, lots from the U.S. Army, from NIH, to do the biochemistry molecular biology. 
now in order to get the dollars to create a drug that goes in the clinic and to pay for all of the tests that the FDA require, all these safety, toxicity, we had to spin out a company just to get private money, so from angel investors, from venture capitalists, from investment banks, et cetera. That was the point of where we had to now look other places for money to look at commercialization of this technology. So that was the first step, to do all these tests. Once we had the company in place, many very qualified people in areas that I have no expertise were hired. They started to do the chemistry. They started to look at the toxicology of the compound. How long does the drug last in animals? Does it stay in the blood long enough, potentially affect the tumor, or does it just go through the body immediately and never really get absorbed? All of these factors have to be considered before creating a drug. It's extremely expensive, so the company was formed. People were hired to interact with the regulatory people at the FDA. Chief medical officer was hired, Frank Parabo, who is a superstar in the field. He did many of the enzalutamide clinical trials. It now became a little bit of a monster that in order to get in the clinic, you have to now have so many different areas of expertise well beyond my lab, my little teeny lab. So it ballooned. You've created or certainly were the impetus to start this thing. It's kind of your baby. What's it like to lose some control of your baby? Do you feel that way? Absolutely. I feel that way. It's having to build trust. This is my baby. I've, I've worked for 20 years on this. To then pass it over into hands that aren't my hands, I have to have trust that those are good hands that it's going into, that they're going to do everything they can to make sure it has the best shot possible of succeeding in the clinical trials. I've done everything that I could here in my lab. I've had over 20 years, I've had at least 10 to 13 people working on it every single day for those 20 years. It's a lot of time and effort. There is the trust, there is the learning to let go a little bit. I can't run the clinical trials. I can't do the chemistry. So I have to believe that it's in good hands. And it is. The people that ESSA has hired are absolutely outstanding. They're superstars. I've only mentioned one, but there's a whole number of superstars that were hired into this company. I can breathe easy. I can realize that it's in good hands. Actually, I want to go back a little bit to something you've said when you describe the trial, which is the phase one trial, if you would, for those people who may not know what phase one trial is, if you could give a brief description of that. And you also mentioned the words dose escalation. If you could describe what that means, I would appreciate it. Yes. So this is a first in human clinical trial, meaning this drug that we've made has never, ever been put into humans before. So you have to make this enormous leap Everything we've done has been in animals. Animals have much faster metabolism. They handle drugs differently than humans. So how do you decide what dose should be the first dose in humans that will be safe? That's really what a phase one is, figuring out what dose is safe in humans, what is the highest dose you can put into humans that are still safe, meaning you're not getting a lot of really horrible toxic effects that would compromise the patient's health or compromise the patient from continuing on the drug. That's what a phase one is. The FDA actually tells the company which dose they can start with, and that's based on their animal studies, their toxicity studies that they had to give the FDA, so the FDA can decide what dose is the first dose that you give patients. 
So in our clinical trial, they're all prostate cancer patients. None of them are healthy. If there's not a placebo arm, there's nothing like that. All of them are patients. All of them receive the drug. You start with three patients per cohort. So the first three patients have been dosed at the lowest dose. And for us, that was 80 milligrams in a patient. Once they go through 30 days and there's no adverse, serious adverse events, then another group of patients can then start on a dose that's higher. Keep testing three patients, moving up the amount of drug that they're receiving until you start to see some toxicity. It's cancer, so you want to get as much drug as you possibly can into patients because you want every chance possible of affecting the tumor. So you really want to have what's called a maximum tolerated dose. That's what a phase one is. So it's finding the dose. It's not really about seeing whether the drug works or not. The dose that we're starting it with right now that we've finished the first three patients was a very low dose. It's not predicted to be efficacious because it's so low. You may get some clinical data. Because we are monitoring blood levels, we're monitoring PSA, we're doing all these things. Once we get to an efficacious dose, which keep your fingers crossed that we do, and that we can put a lot of this drug into patients, we should get some sort of readout about whether we're having any effect on PSA levels. Patients will tell you if they're feeling well or not. You get a lot of feedback from patients. Once you find that dose, then you start the phase two studies. And the phase two is really to give an indication of whether the drug has any effect on the tumor. And how do you evaluate in the phase two whether or not it's had an effect on the tumor? In our trial, there's always PSA. That's one of the major readouts. It's usually a 50% drop in PSA. We're looking at tumor volume. I think we are doing some analysis of how much tumor burden these patients have. And I'm not sure what else, actually. Probably the quality of life as well, and maybe morphine use. I'm blurry here on all the aspects of the clinical trials because I'm not the clinician. Our chief medical officer, Frank Parabo, designed all the clinical trials. Are you still working on this drug in the lab, or is that something that is not happening anymore? We are working on this drug in the lab. What my academic research is looking at is we know that prostate cancer forms resistance to drugs. That's been the problem. You treat men with these therapies and eventually develop resistance, so you switch to another drug and eventually develop resistance. Of course, we're thinking, well, what if our drug develops resistance? What resistance would that be? What mechanism would that involve? So to try to address that, what my lab did is incubated these human prostate cancer cells with our drug for a very long period of time. It was about a year and a half. Eventually, we saw resistance. So eventually, the prostate cancer cells started to grow in the presence of our drug. That's resistance. The good thing is that it took a year and a half. And so if you put this into perspective, in tissue culture, enzalutamide causes resistance with long-term culture in three months. So ours caused resistance in a year and a half, so six times longer. If that pans out clinically, that would be wonderful. We still need to understand how the cancer cells are forming resistance to our drugs. So we're now analyzing these cells, and we have picked up one potential pathway that is manageable. I'm not going to describe more here because the work's just not complete enough. I would like to make sure I'm standing on really firm ground. But in everything that we've looked at, we have a, a resistance mechanism that we seem to be able to halt.
And that's the whole theory behind us. If you can understand the resistance, you can potentially do combination therapies in order to prolong the efficacy of the drug or maybe even potentially cure the patient if you do a cocktail. That's an amazing word to use when we talk about metastatic prostate cancer. It's a word I don't like to use. It's really optimistic and potentially so exciting sounding. That's always been the goal of my lab. We would really like to just get rid of the prostate cancer, just get rid of it out of these men. Which brings me to the question, how did you get into prostate cancer? Why prostate cancer? Why not breast cancer, kidney cancer, arthritis? I was very interested in cancer. My sister died of cancer when I was a child, so I was very aware of cancer. I knew that I just wanted to work in cancer. To me, there weren't different types of cancer as a kid. It's just cancer. That's all you hear. You don't hear it's leukemia. You don't hear it's whatever. As a child, I wanted to be a cancer researcher. When I went off to do my PhD, I did it on the dioxin transcription factor, dioxin receptor, in fish. I had a wonderful PhD experience when I came back to Canada. I never thought I was smart enough to do human medical research. I wanted to stay in Vancouver. (laughs) because that's where I was living. So my friends and families pushed me into applying for a position with Dr. Nicholas Burchowski. Dr. Nicholas Burchowski, he was an MD, PhD. He was the discoverer of dihydrotestosterone, which is really what fuels prostate cancer and intermittent androgen suppression. He was a real superstar in the prostate cancer field. I was lucky enough that he hired me. What I did my PhD on was the dioxin receptor, which is a transcription factor. There were things that I did with that transcription factor, which was very similar to what I went on to do with the androgen receptor. Androgen receptor is also a transcription factor. What a transcription factor is, it's something that binds to DNA to turn on lots of genes, to turn on the production of of making lots of different things in the nucleus cells. So it wasn't a big jump. For me, I still remember when when Dr. Burchowski offered me the job and my first day on the job. It was the best feeling ever. It was a gorgeous day in Vancouver. I walked down the road by the BC Cancer Agency, happier than ever that I was in medical research, and I had a chance to make a difference. I think that you've already made a significant difference. The potential of what you're doing could be such a breakthrough for men with metastatic prostate cancer you may well make such a significant difference. Although I always, as I said, hesitate to use that word cure, if you can stretch the resistance and prevent the resistance, that's darn near close. I get a little personal with you, if I might. You're a woman. We know that men and women are not the same within science. They're not treated the same. So I'm wondering, would you be willing to share a little bit about your experience of being a woman in science? Sure. didn't expect that. um, I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no. It's a good question. As I've gotten older, I would say it's changed. But when I was younger, I would go to conferences and people would automatically assume that my students or postdocs must be Dr. Satter, not me. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. you did get dismissed more easily, I believe, than, than a man would get dismissed. Credibility sometimes was the issue, being a young woman in the field. I still remember the very first conference I went to. There was only one woman speaker at the conference. It was a conference all about urology. It was actually the Society of Basic Urologic Research. And there was only one speaker. That was Natasha Kipriano. 
I think that was 1995 or 1996. I hate to say it, she, in spite of giving the most amazing talk, some of the men that I sat with, all they talked about was how she looked. And that just made me feel sick. They were very complimentary. Natasha's a beautiful woman, but it was it was just kind of disappointing that they weren't listening to what she was saying. I have found that, but it's gotten better. I would say it's gotten enormously better in the 20 years, whether it's just because I've become an, an older woman now, but I don't think so. I think the world has changed in 20 years. I think the medical field now views women with I guess I will use the word respect, and they're not so easily dismissed. But it still is tough being a woman, and I will say it's especially tough in biotech. Women do bring different perspectives. I would say that S's board has a woman on it, it's me, but the rest are all, well, let's just say it lacks diversity. I bring the diversity card to the board, and I don't think this is really uncommon. I think it's harder for women to become board members. Hopefully that's changing too. Right. So I'm going to bring us back to the clinical trial, if I may. You are currently in phase one, which is a dose escalation trial. If I understand correctly, at some point you'll come to a dosage that you decide or the FDA or you in consultation with the FDA decides that that's your target dose. You've gotten the proper saturation and toxicities are manageable, I would assume is the way to look at it. And then the next step, which you reflected on is to a phase two. Is that a reasonable summary? Yes, that's very accurate. You're still in phase one. A man who may be interested in learning more about this phase one and perhaps how to get involved or even perhaps as you move into a phase two, because I am very optimistic that you will, how would they go about doing that? On the website, clinicaltrials.gov, there is a description of the clinical trial. If you put in a search of EPI-506, EPI you'll find the trial. There are only five sites for the phase one. There is a low number of patients because it's three per dose. The five sites are one in Canada, which is at the BC Cancer Agency in Vancouver, Canada. There's the University of Washington in Seattle, Carmanos, Cancer Center in Detroit. There's Ann Arbor in Michigan. And there's Scottsdale in Arizona. So there are these five sites. It's a very low number of patients right now in the phase one, but I definitely encourage men to look into it. Could they reach out directly to one of the centers or they need to go through the clinicaltrials.gov website? On the clinicaltrials.gov website, it will say who the medical oncologists are at each of these sites. That's probably one of the most efficient ways of inquiring. Basically, it would be going to their own oncologist or urologist that they're seeing and discussing with their oncologist or urologist the clinical trial, this EPI-506, and then getting more information about entering the trial. They should go through their oncologist or the urologist, but they could also reach out directly, I assume? They could. And just why I mentioned maybe speaking to their own oncologist is there's a lot of eligibility criteria. So it's whether they fit into these eligibility criteria. Like, for example, we were a little bit late with some patients in our first dose, and that was because 
patients can't be on other treatments. If they're on other treatments, they have to be washed out. It's five half-lives of the drug, which can be up to a month. Things like enzalutamide have a very long half-life. So it might be efficient to talk to their doctors about whether they fit the eligibility criteria. Does someone have to live close to the trial site, or can someone come from a distance and still participate? I believe that situation has already occurred where a patient was traveling to the center. So I think it's possible. The only one that I would say it gets more complicated is crossing borders. That's beyond my expertise. Just because one does not live near one of the centers, if one is willing to travel, they should still follow up with their physician and talk about eligibility and then if they're still interested to pursue it. I think so. The drug, as they take it, is this something that's in pill form? Is it an infusion? How does a man get it? It's in a kind of liquid gel capsule. So I believe it's kind of like a cod liver oil capsule, orally. You take it once a day. So a man could take their pills and go home and then check in whenever they're supposed to check in again? Yeah, I'm not completely sure of the protocol because it is a safety toxicity, whether they have to have their blood levels measured and all these types of things. So I'm not sure how much time they need to be really close to medical facility to monitor these things. I would like to ask you the question as to how long you think the phase one will last, but if I understand correctly, you want it to last longer because it means you're able to escalate the dose more and you really don't know where that is. So timing-wise is unknown at this point. Is, is that correct? Pretty much. There has been discussion that we're probably looking at September, somewhere in that time, the end of the summer. The company is going to release some of the clinical data from the phase one around that time once the phase one is done. And exactly like you mentioned, there's you can't be precise because you just don't know how these things are going to pan out. But that's the rough timeline that they're looking at. We sure hope it's so, not shorter than that. <laughs> so if you have the data, you release it that's obviously through a journal article or, or something of that sort, but you also have to communicate with the FDA, correct? Yes, I, I believe that the company has to keep communicating with the FDA all the time. Any adverse events have to be reported, all these types of things. I believe it's a very become a very close relationship with the FDA. And then if you want to move on from a phase one to a phase two, and I understand that you're not a trialist, you're the creator, so to speak, that you then need to go back to the FDA and get their approval to move from a phase one to a phase two. Yes. I believe that's yeah. correct. They have to make sure that the dose and everything is safe. And then obviously after that, we move into a phase three where we will look for other things besides dosage. We look at survival benefit and perhaps quality of life. I'd like to see that more often as part of endpoints of clinical trials. That's something I know the advocacy world is trying to get the FDA to acknowledge. We could be talking about many years yet before we could actually see this in the clinic. Yeah, I think one of the fastest from clinical trials to approval was for enzalutamide in this field. I think the period of time was about five years, which mm -hmm. is phenomenal. So we would like to beat that if we could. Good goal. A lot of us pulling <laughs> for that. <laughs> I hope so. A lot of so, it comes down to recruiting patients, how, how efficient we are at recruiting patients. A lot of it comes down to also how good the drug is. When patients start hearing that the drug is working well, recruitment tends to be faster.
your results and recruitment is what we need to stay focused on and hopefully see this in the clinic in about three to four years. How does that sound? Oh, that sounds wonderful. That would be a dream come true. You have done some absolutely amazing, amazing work. And of course, this is the potential to change lives of so many people, not only the men, but of course, their families and their friends. As a prostate cancer survivor myself, I really want to thank you so much for your hard work and the frustrations that you must have gone through. And of course, for sharing this information with us. Just want to say for all of us, thank you so much. I don't know that you have anything you want to add that I've missed that you think people would want to hear. I will just add one thing. I give talks to patients quite frequently. The world has made massive improvements to cancer treatment over the years. My sister died of cancer when I was a child, and that cancer is now very, very curable. I think the cure rates are about 95% or more. Things do improve. There are cures for cancer. They do develop, and so I think the world stays very positive conspiracy theories that there's a cure and the drug company is stifling it. That makes me feel very sad because I think the scientists and everyone is trying very hard to improve the quality of life and find cures for cancer and other diseases. Thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. And is it okay if we check in with you down the line to see how things are progressing? Yes. Yes, please. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you think it's helpful, please remember to like it so that others who might benefit will be able to find it and listen to it. We invite your comments, thoughts, and suggestions. Our email address is cancerabcs at gmail.com. Don't forget to put the letter S after the ABC. For more information about how to deal with a cancer diagnosis, as well as to sign up for our important blogs or to learn about our support groups and support programs, go to our webpage located at www.cancerabcs.org. That's www.cancerabcs.org. Thank you for listening.